how can the machine help the human make a better decision? And that doesn't necessarily mean that the human has to listen to the machine. It was evident which paper the human wrote, which paper the machine wrote, and which paper we wrote together. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. This is part one of a two-part series exploring a real-world use case of a large language model in an academic setting. In this episode, we interview Lieutenant Colonel Joe Buffamonte, United States Marine Corps. Joe is a former Army War College student who completed his studies using a school-sanctioned AI avatar as a learning support tool. We'll talk with Joe about his experience using the system, what he feels its strengths and weaknesses are, and how he sees this technology evolving in the future to help the warfighter. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Joe, thanks for coming on the show with us today. Thanks for having me, guys. So before we get started with the questions and why we're here today, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you got to where you are today? All right. So I'm a Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel. I'm an armor officer in the Marine Corps. Been an armor officer my whole career. I was commissioned in 2003. I did ROTC out of Miami, Ohio University. Uh, I did two deployments, one to Fallujah, one on a Marine Expeditionary Unit as a lieutenant. I did two as a company commander. I did one as a uh, an advisor to the UAE Presidential Guard as a captain, and then I came back and did a deployment to Afghanistan as a company tank company commander in 2013. Then I did a uh, joint assignment at Joint Task Force Civil Support in Fort Eustis, Virginia. Then I came back and went to uh, Newport, Rhode Island, Naval War College. I picked up a secondary MOS of MAGTAF planner at Maritime Advanced Warfighting School. I did a payback tour in Bahrain with Task Force 51 5th MEB. And then I got selected for command. I was the last inspector instructor at 4th Tank Battalion. Uh, so we did the deactivation as part of the Commandant of the Marine Corps 2030 force design. And then I became a student at Army War College, and I'm getting ready to go to the J-35 in UConn. Well, Joe, you've had a, a really impressive career with a really lot of variety throughout that career, and pretty interesting for a uh, Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel to be at the Army War College, and that's kind of what we're here to talk about uh, with you, your time over at the Army War College, and specifically your use of an AI avatar that helped you throughout kind of your coursework there. What was it like using that system? How did it work? How did it help you? How did you even come to that idea? Yeah, that's a good question. We had to do a uh, strategic research requirement uh, for the Army War College. And you have to pick your topic probably the first month and a half, two months in. And I know I wanted to do something on human and machine teaming, but I didn't really know where to start. Um, so I, I literally pulled up the, the course catalog I did the old control F. I searched for uh, human machine teaming 
and it led me to this professor, Dr. Billy Berry. Uh, so I sent him an email. I was like, hey, I'm interested in doing something with the human machine teaming, but I don't really know anything beyond that. So I, I met him in his office uh, and he proposed the idea of, hey, what if you did a first person research project with an AI system that I've created and we can kind of go back and forth on you know, what that looks like. I wanted to kind of focus on can artificial intelligence help humans make better decisions? With my planner background, I wanted to see if AI could help sift through a lot of the data that human planners are required to sift through. And if they could, uh, together, could we find a way to come up with a better solution, better courses of actions uh, using the analytical power of AI to sift through the data and the human experience and creative thinking, critical thinking capabilities there. If you combine the two, do you get a better product? So that's how I kind of got introduced to the to the project that I did. And so how did this integrate with your work? Like how did this avatar help you complete your assignments or do research? What was it like in that sense? Yeah. So so initially I thought I was just going to create kind of my own separate project. And I would do the research requirement and then I do the coursework on top of that. And the two shall never see each other, never touch each other. Well, I quickly learned that I was totally overwhelmed if I was going to go down that route. I didn't have enough bandwidth to do both of those things and stay married at the same time. So what I did is I, I had some ideas of as far as, you know, I wanted to test, can the machine produce human-like results? Um, so what I did is I took some coursework that I've that I had already done or I was in the course of doing. And I talked to a few professors and said, hey, I'd like to submit a couple different documents to you. Some of the answers are going to be produced by me. Some of the answers are going to be produced by a machine. Some of them are going to be produced, you know, collaborating with the machine and myself. Would you be willing to participate? And they said yes. First thing I did is I generated a list of about 15 questions. These were questions that were coming up periodically in our seminar groups. And I asked the professors, can you, one, determine if a machine wrote it or if a human wrote it or if us together wrote the response to this answer? And then the second part of it was, are these answers acceptable for you know, a war college student? So then going back to the element of time, I actually had the machine just generate all of the answers. And I turned that into four war college professors. They gave me input back. And it was about 50-50 as far as, yes, we can tell the difference or no, we can't. Uh, on that. And it was it was about 50-50 on, yes, this is acceptable. No, this is not acceptable as a war college answer. So I thought to myself, all right, well, that's a place to start. It, it does seem like the machine is capable of producing answers. And this was with no tweaks to the system. This is what Dr. Berry presented to me. We sat down together. We ran the, the questions through the, the machine. Whatever it popped out, that's what we submitted to the professor. So I, there was really no human machine teaming up to this point. So the next thing I did is I took a paper that we had to write early in the year, even before I picked this project. And I asked four more professors, hey, can I submit you an actual longer paper this time around? Same thing. Can you tell who wrote it? And can you give me a grade for the paper? So this time around, it was evident which paper the, the human wrote, which paper the machine wrote, and which paper we wrote together which is what I wanted. And again, what I wanted was I wanted the human machine teaming paper to score the best. And I wanted the machine paper to score the least, which thankfully that's what it scored. And then I was somewhere in the middle there 
as far as what, what the human was able to produce. So that gave me some confidence as far as, all right, this human machine teaming thing actually does work. And then throughout the course of the year, I brought it into some planning sessions with my classmates. And then if I ever got stuck on like a paper topic, I would call up Dr. Barry and say, hey, can we, can we get the machine out? Let's run through some ideas. And it actually helped me create, or at least gives you a good place to start as far as generating ideas and brainstorming much faster than had I sat down with a research librarian or just, you know, continue to Google 12 different keywords and then have to dig through, through all that. So it was pretty helpful as far as generating ideas. And then towards the end of it, the way we worked it was we would just put a, a bunch of questions, one question through and have it spit out a few different answers. And then I was able to kind of parse together, hey, this is kind of what I was thinking, but the machine wrote it much better than I could have articulated. Uh, so it actually helped me, one, ask better questions. That was one of the first things that I learned was you have to ask it a specific question and then you have to follow up if you're not getting the answers that you want. Or if you are getting the answers that you want, it may generate something else that forces you to ask that follow-up question. On the question side of the house, it made me think, am I asking humans the right question, let alone am I asking machines the right questions? So what I found was sometimes we'll ask a human a question and we'll never follow up or we'll just say, all right, well, that, that was good enough. Or I don't really like that answer. I'll go ask another human until I get whatever answer I was hoping for. Just probably not how we should be interacting with humans. Uh, so it made me kind of ask or at least think about asking better questions of humans and machines. It helped me kind of be a better writer because it, it produces better written products than at least you know this human can produce. And the third thing was I found that the more people that are interacting with the system, the better the results are. And what I mean by that is I was able to get a certain production out of the machine, but when I brought it in with a, in a team aspect, when we had 16 other individuals working with it or three or four other individuals working with it, those humans with the machine produce better results than if it was just one human and one machine working with it. It's really insightful because that jives with what we've found as well. Luke and I have messed around with the commercial side of it with ChatGPT, and we've found that um, it's it's very good, like you said, as helping us get over that initial inertia of all right, where do we start? What are some of the ideas? It really helps writers out in that way. Um, so that really does reinforce what we've found. What did you find any drawbacks to using the system? What were some of the negative aspects of it? Yeah, so I'll try to go in order. Um, so when I uh, when I submitted the paper, uh, I had to strip all uh, footnotes out of my original paper because the machine at the time was not able to generate where it was getting its sources from. And the paper assignment that I had required that you provided footnotes. So that was one of the deals that I made with the professors going in was, I'm gonna submit you three papers. I had already gotten my grade on the, the legitimate paper, uh, but I had to strip it of footnotes to, to keep it anonymous. So they were willing to do that. And hopefully I don't get charged with plagiarism because I didn't, I didn't turn any of these in for a grade. So that, that was one drawback is the system is, it has a hard time telling you where it got its information from, which I also found that uh, when I brought it in, in the team environment, I passed out surveys to kind of ask the crowd, what did you think of it? How did it work with it? Goods and bads. And almost all of the bads always came back to, I don't know where the system's generating its ideas from, so I don't trust the system, which I found interesting one, I didn't think that people would care that much, and they actually cared a lot of where the machine was get, generating its information from. And two, 
I've tried to play devil's advocate with them and said, if you were to ask a human being a question and they gave you a response, typically we don't ask the human to go back to like grade school and justify how they came up with that thought. We're usually pretty trustful of the human providing the response. Or if we know the response is wrong, either we'll call them on it or we'll just move on and say that was that was false information, which the machine did not get the same benefit of the doubt that humans are given on a, on a day-to-day basis, especially with basic questions like two plus two, five plus five, that's probably too basic. Everybody should should get that. But like, hey, what do you think about China's accident in the South China Sea? You could ask a human that, you'd get 10 different answers from 10 different humans and you wouldn't question them on where they're getting the data. You Maybe you'll ask, where'd you come up with that? Where'd you come up with that? But you're not drilling down into five or six tiers of where the machine got the information, which is, I think is kind of where we're at right now. When the machine spits an answer out, you want to drill down five or six layers to figure out where it actually got the response. And my counter argument was, if the machine generated an idea for you to go further research, why do you care where it, where it actually got its information from, as long as it's generating good ideas for humans to further research on? So that was one, one drawback, the ability of it not being able to produce where it got its stuff. Uh, another drawback that, that I had with it was it doesn't have the ability to listen to a conversation. So let's say we have it in an operational planning team or an OPT. And if there's just humans in there, there's human interaction. At some point in that conversation or interaction, I could say, hey, Matt, what do you think about that? And the assumption is you've been paying attention and you're able to provide input. I can't do that with the machine the way it's currently configured right now. So you have to ask a specific question and then you may have to ask a series of follow-ups to kind of get it caught up to where the conversation was in order for it to generate something that you wanted. A workaround that we, we created to kind of work around that was we put a human, in this case, it was Dr. Barry in the planning session, who was following along and knew enough of the scenario and what was going on to, to follow along. And then I would turn to him and say, hey, what does the machine think about what we're talking about? And then he would he would craft a few questions in the background and then he'd, he'd bring me a response back. Uh, so that was one way, one, it keeps a human in the loop. It doesn't overburden the commander uh, or a staff as far, you know, the principal staff officer, as far as having to go back to the machine and catch it up, you have a human there, an action officer could go back, follow along, knows what's going on and can keep up pace with the machine, not being able to listen to the conversation and offer somewhat near real time responses that the machine is from not being able to listen. And then I think the third thing that I would probably say is the access to the system itself. So Dr. Barry owned the the computer system that the AI was on. So I would have to set up times with him, which worked out fine for me. But if you start adding multiple people in there, it didn't exist on the cloud, like kind of chat GPT or a web-based server where anybody could go in at any time and ask what they wanted. You had to have access to that physical system. You could put it on the cloud, that costs money. You could put it on uh, a server that costs money and space and, and servers and all sorts of things like that. So those are some of the initial drawbacks that I've I found. I think that's really interesting, especially um, when you talk about scalability and accessibility. As you said, it worked out well for you, but it was a challenge if you were trying to bring in more folks. Um, and I think really interesting when you talked about the trust in the system and you know the questioning of 
where things came from. And I think um, Dr. Alexander Cott, uh, the chief scientist of uh, Army Research Lab, who actually just just retired, um, Matt and I, when we've talked to him previously, talks about the requirements or the expectations that we place on machines vice what we do humans. And we have a lot, we fool ourselves a lot of um, the knowledge base we have or how we make decisions. Uh, so we'll say, well, you know, I could ask you why. I could say, Joe, why'd you just take a drink of that water there? Um, and you might say, you know, I was just thirsty or whatever. Maybe in actuality in your consciousness it was, or subconscious, it was because the cup was red. You saw something red on Matt's screen um, that just sparked these different ideas and thoughts. Uh, and we tend to kind of put on machines that it has to explain absolutely everything. Um, and I think you make some good points about it being used as a tool to start, not necessarily looking for all the answers, uh, which kind of bears out that the, the machine got the worst grades um, on, on the papers uh, when it did it by itself. Um, you know, one question is, as we look at this, and, and you kind of actually segued really well to, for this question, when you talked about, you know, it doesn't have the ability to listen to conversations. So it's still, you know, Matt and I found even when we interviewed ChatGPT, there was kind of this it didn't feel like a human conversation. The interaction wasn't exactly the same. It was a, a pretty standard input output um, and had to make sure you were kind of being specific. And there are some benefits to that, like you said about, you know, are we asking questions the right way? Um, but, you know, the question is, what do you see as potential next steps in the future and how can this be used by soldiers, Marines, uh, service members in the future to help with operations, with planning, with um, just straight up communication and, and building and learning and training, how can it evolve maybe and how could it be used in the future from your perspective? Yeah, I got you. I, I want to go back for one second on the, the trust question. I don't want to say the majority because I don't have the statistics to back it up, but I think some people look at AI and are using it to answer all their questions. They're using it as a data decision tool. Whereas I think we should be looking at it as a way to inform humans on making decisions. So I think there's a big disconnect there as far as data-driven decision makings, i.e. whatever the machine tells me, that's what I'm going to do, versus data-informed decision making, which is more along the lines of kind of what I look at. How can the machine help the human make a better decision? And that doesn't necessarily mean that the human has to listen to the machine every time the machine puts something out just because it's a machine. And I, I think that's part of the problem right now as far as the trust is, we're moving towards this data-driven decision-making. And in the sense, from a cognitive sense, I don't necessarily know if that's a healthy way to look at it. I think you need to look at it more from a data-informed decision-making fr from a cognitive aspect. Certainly you can make an argument if you're looking at something based off of total statistics or there's it's a physics problem. You have so much, so many widgets and there's so many widgets over here and the computer is able to do the math better, better for you on that. May, that may be a little bit more of a data-driven decision-making, but I think we're looking at a cognitive planning assessment type thing. I think we should be using the machine to do data-informed decision-making. Where we go next, I'll kind of look at it from an academia perspective and an operational uh, perspective. So from academia, I think there's definitely a lot of utility in helping students in professional military education settings or, you know, 
any really academic setting as far as helping students create and generate ideas, brainstorming to figure out paper topics or have a place to start. I think the machine can help people write better. I think the machine can help you ask questions better. And I think the machine can help kind of fill the gaps as far as you only have so much time. There's a lot of reading. You know, can I have the machine summarize one reading while I do another reading? Or can I do all the readings, but then have the machine summarize those readings so then I can go into class having some cognitive notes as far as, all right, I remember the machine took my notes for me. I read this. Now I remember that this was associated with this article and, and that article. Uh, and I think that'll ha help drive better conversations in the classroom. I think that'll help produce better writers in the future. But I also acknowledge th the fact that, you know, there's a slippery slope as far as having the machine do everything for you. Um, and I think one way around that is to require students to continue to have footnotes in their writing, but to take it a step further, require the students to have footnotes from course material, which, you know, chat GPT or even the system I was using, you would have to fence off the system from producing, you know, I only want you to read these, you know, 20 books and produce your answers based off of these 20 books because that's my class course material. Uh, and I don't think there's that capability exists just yet. So that would be one way for, for academia to prevent plagiarism and make sure the students are still doing some work on their own. From an operational perspective, I think we're only limited by our imagination. I think there's utility in granting the machines access to Nipper and Sipper and JWix type systems. Now, clearly there's some cyber challenges there that I, I don't even want to pretend to understand, but I think that'll also help with the trust issue. If we know that the machine is only pulling data from a nipper net, or if we, we know the machine is only pulling data from the zipper net or JWix, there's a level of increased trust there that we, do, we know that it's not just going out into the, the hinterlands of the internet and the ethers potentially making stuff up. Uh, it could potentially be coming from source documents based on those systems already, which I think will help the planner sift through all that data that's available. Uh, I think there's an opportunity to train it to produce some of the products that humans spend a lot of time on. I've got a planner background, so I'm kind of approaching this from a planner's mentality. But if I had a machine that was able to sit in an OPT, an operational planning team, during problem framing, or mission analysis, whatever step one, whatever your service, step one of the planning process is. And then at the, the output of that is the mission analysis or problem framing brief to the boss. I think what happens now is humans spend about a third of whatever allocated time they were given on actually thinking about the problem and two thirds of their time on creating slides and generating the brief and making sure that they can communicate to the boss. If we can train AI to produce the brief or produce the products or create the products, can we get humans to spend two thirds of the time or three fourths of the time actually thinking about the problem and then let the machine spit the product out on the backside? I think there's utility there. Can we train a machine to read an op order and then take the op order and already have specified and applied tasks pulled out? It already has a framework for the op order that you're going to write based off of whatever co course of action are selected. So I think some of those mundane admin tasks that humans perform now could potentially be replicated by the AI, but you have to have the right people training the AI to produce 
the right product. And if people say that's crazy, I think that we already do it. We just don't realize that we do it. For instance, Will's power of attorney are probably generated by AI right now. You probably just don't know it. You could probably go to Google right now, type in Will's power of attorney, fill out basic information. This is who I want to have my power of attorney. This is what I want them to be able to do. And then some AI machine is going to generate the actual power of attorney or the will or whatever it may be. So I, th I think AI is already working as far as replicating some of those mundane admin tasks in our daily life right now. Uh, we just may not realize it because we're looking at it from a commercial civilian side of the house. Can we take some of those same things, apply them to military systems and help the human uh, focus more on the cognitive vice, the uh, administrative tasks that they're being asked to do? Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I think uh, it's actually interesting, your answer, because uh, normally when we think of technology, technology starts out of something specific. And then we say, how can we open this up to other avenues? But in this sense, um, systems like the one you used or ChatGPT are kind of really wide to begin with. And now, uh, from your view, and, and I tend to agree with it, we're kind of clamping them down to very specific sets. So this will be on, you know, this War College course, or this will only be on Nippernet. That way we can control the information and the corpus of data that's in there um, so we can so we can increase that trust so we do know where it's getting its information from. So that's kind of a, a different approach to the future of technology. We're actually kind of scaling it down to a more bespoke fashion. So it's very interesting. Yeah, what you just said spurred kind of uh, something that I remember Dr. Barry and I discussing. A lot of people are familiar with ChatGPT right now. A lot of people probably aren't familiar with what Dr. Barry has created or is working to create. And I think one of the big differences right now is ChatGPT, we have no ability to tailor it. We have no ability to scale it. We have no ability to control what it's accessing. Whereas Dr. Barry's machine, you have all of those things plus more. So I could take Dr. Barry's system and I could tell it, I could ask it the same question. You know, what are the challenges in the South China Sea? Just to have an example. And then I could tailor Dr. Barry's machine to look at it from an American military G3 perspective. It'll give me an answer based off of that scenario. And then I could ask it the same question, but now have it be a, a Chinese G3 military person. And then we should, the machine should give you two pretty drastic answers. Uh, and it should help the human kind of look at it. Okay, I kind of understand the US lens, but I, I really didn't understand how the Chinese are looking at this problem until the machine gave me that answer. Maybe I need to go back and look at it because I may have wanted to do X, but now knowing what how the Chinese look at that, they may, that may be too provocative. Maybe I need to do something that's in the Y category to not provoke us up the escalation ladder. So I think that's one thing for the future. And it can be tailored to, you know, you could have a G3 avatar, you could have a G4 avatar, both looking at two different problem sets. And the example I use for the G4 is imagine walking into your office, you open up your computer and the AI is there. It's already done all the analytics on some of the stuff that's coming out uh, as far as putting artificial intelligence into engines and transmissions and measuring all of the, that data and then producing that back to the human and saying, hey, if you run you know, helicopter X, for th three more hours, the transmission is going to fail. I recommend that we should probably look at that transmission now and being able to focus the G4 on, on stuff like that. That's a, 
that's a tactical example. But now imagining that at the macro operational strategic level, you may be able to identify certain units that are more or less ready than maybe they're reporting on themselves, or you're at least able to see, hey, we were going to go with unit X over here, but based off of the data, uh, we need to do a resupply mission. Whereas unit Y over here, we could give it to them while we do the resupply mission and then we can we can keep going there. So I, again, I think we're limited only by our imagination. And the G2 folks is another thing. Um, Dr. Barry's system has a, a lot of filters on it where it pulls out a lot of negativity, racism, sexism, all that stuff gets kind of pulled out. But one of the things he talks about is the G2 people may want that filter turned off because they may be missing something because an adversary, they may not care about the same things or the same values that we care about. So they may be putting something out wherever the AI is able to access, but had that filter been on, the G2 folks may not may not catch that. So again, I think the one of the key advantages between like a chat GPT and what Dr. Barry's working on is the ability to scale it, control it, and you know, really tailor it to whoever the end user is. Yeah, I think that point is actually really powerful because if you think about having a highly knowledgeable extra employee more or less in every one of the shops as you need it can be multiplied you're not you don't have to worry about going out and finding someone recruiting someone hoping they're willing to relocate hoping you can meet their salary demands you know you can kind of mold that individual yourself and have one in each of those shops i think that's that's incredibly powerful and that's a great point there so hopefully the the tailorization part of it the custom control part of it um, that we clearly have in the military now. Hopefully we can take advantage of that. Hey, one, one more thing that I'll, I'll close on is uh, one of the other things people complained, not really complained, had concerns about was the loss of human jobs to machines. Uh, and I think when you look at it from a human machine teaming aspect, you, you'll find that you may have different jobs that are needed for humans. So the machine may replace a human in one aspect, but may create a job for an, for a human in another aspect. So you, you you may need a programmer or you just may need somebody who knows what the hell is going on to sit with the machine since it can't listen and it can't really keep up. Although I think as technology improves, it probably could listen. I think it takes a lot of servers to, to do that though. But I kind of went into the, the project thinking that Skynet was going to be activated soon and everybody, the, the Terminator would soon take over. I, I don't feel that way. There's a lot of technology improvements that have to be made. There's a lot of uh, quantum computing that has to happen in order to to create a Terminator-like Skynet scenario. Uh, and I also think that while some jobs may go away, I think for maybe every job it it takes away, it'll create a job doing something else to make sure that the machine is functioning the way it's supposed to to function. Uh, and I think that when you hear a lot of the humans aren't in the loop or humans are out of the loop, I think we always have to caution ourselves to remember that one, humans created the technology, humans are programming the technology, humans are granting access to whatever the AI has access to. Humans can certainly always pull the plug. And if we think of it from a data uh, informed decision-making, humans get the ultimate say, and they don't necessarily have to listen to the machine. So that's one thing I would caution people that say that machines are just going to take over everything. I don't, I don't think we're just there just yet. Yeah. Based on Luke and I using uh, AI systems, it's just as likely 
to turn off the oxygen in the hospital as it is to try to turn off the oxygen in the hospital, but really flick off the electricity on a streetlight somewhere. It, from what, from us using it, still makes a lot of mistakes, very confidently makes a lot of mistakes. So I, I, I agree. It, it will help in a lot of ways, and it can boost efficiency in a lot of ways, and there's a lot of human resources gains that we can make from it. But it's nowhere near ready to kill us all and destroy everything. <laughs> yeah. It's certainly not perfect. Just like humans aren't perfect, the machines aren't perfect either. Exactly. Well, well, Joe, we want to say thanks a lot for coming on the show and talking to us today. We've been high on this AI stuff for a couple episodes now, and we've got a firsthand look at somebody who used them not only in the military, but in an academic sense as well. Uh, and you were able to you know, give us your experience on that so we can kind of gauge where the technology is at, where it could be going moving forward, you know, and what the Army can do with it uh, in the future. So thanks a lot for coming on today and, and talking with us. Yeah, no problem. Good to see you. Good to meet you, Luke. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Lieutenant Colonel Joe Buffamonte. Make sure you stay tuned to The Convergence for part two, where we'll talk with the creator of the system, Dr. Billy Barry. You can keep up to date with all things MadSci by following us on Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, or visiting the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. Finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. This feedback helps improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience.